The Gospels of Matthew and Mark both contain a passage of Scripture where Jesus, hanging upon the cross, cries out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabbatani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew twenty-seven forty-six. This passage is commonly interpreted as follows. While hanging on the cross, God placed our sins upon Jesus. Therefore, God had to turn his back on his son, since he is too holy to look upon sin. I discussed this idea in my previous post. You can go back and review there. I find it problematic to suggest that the father would turn his back on his son at the moment he needed him the most. Not to mention the problems this presents when advocating others to lay down their own lives for this kind of father. In my view, this overlooks the entire ministry of Jesus who proclaimed the love of the Father and confronted sin head-on with forgiveness and healing. It also neglects the unique oneness Jesus shared with his Father here on earth. As foreign as this may sound to our Western thinking, there were many objections to the notion that God abandoned Jesus on the cross within the writings of the early church fathers. One such example was from Gregory of Nazianzen. Quote, he who subjects presents to God that which he has subjected, making our condition his own. Of the same kind, it appears to me, is the expression, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It was not he who was forsaken, either by the Father or by his own Godhead, as some have thought, as if it were afraid of the passion, and therefore withdrew itself from him in his sufferings. For who compelled him either to be born on earth at all, or to be lifted up on the cross? But as I said, he was in his own person representing us. For we were the forsaken and despised before, but now by the sufferings of him who could not suffer, we were taken up and saved. Similarly, he makes his own our folly and our transgressions, and says what follows in the psalm. For it is very evident that the 21st Psalm refers to Christ. End of quote. I would like to suggest the possibility there's something else going on here that may not be as apparent to our modern Western reading, but would have been clearly perceived by the Jews within Second Temple Judaism. The Jews during the time of Jesus did not have the luxury of personal copies of Scripture. There was an oral tradition of memorizing Scripture. In particular, the Psalms were sung from childhood. When Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All good Jewish boys and girls would have immediately recognized this phrase. This is the first line of Psalm 22, a psalm by David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? This is a common theme within the Psalms, crying out in angst and desperation to God in a time of need. When we continue reading, David begins to encourage himself in the Lord. David doesn't end with fear and doubt in his God. He wants us to continue following his thoughts. Here's a few verses from Psalm 22. Verse 11 says this, Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. Verse 14 and 15, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Verse 16 through 19 says this, 
For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. We can begin to see the broader perspective. Jesus cries out the first line of Psalm 22, which the Jews would have begun citing line by line, similar to someone singing the first line of a song before everyone joins in. All at once, out of their own mouths, they sing, They have pierced my hands and feet. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments. This prophetic psalm they had sung all their lives was being fulfilled before their very eyes. Could this be true? Was this man truly the Son of God? Had God forsaken him while in the hands of wicked men? Let's keep singing. For he was not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. It's Psalm 22, verse 24. David no doubt felt rejected and despised at times, but David had faith that his God would hear his cries and would not abandon him, nor turn his face from him. The last line of Psalm 22 closes as follows. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. That's Psalm 22, verse 30 and 31. In other words, it is finished. In case you may think I'm overreaching with Scripture and suggesting Psalm 22 would have been on the minds of the Gospel writers and the Jews, let's look at the verses in Matthew which lead up to this cry of Jesus. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew 27, 43-46. This passage is a direct quotation by Matthew pulled right out of Psalm 22, 8, which says, He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Another example of this connection can be found in John's Gospel. In John 19, 23-25, it says, When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it and see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Again, this was a direct reference by the writer wanting us to recall Psalm 22 in connection with the cross. There can be no doubt Matthew had Psalm 22 in mind when writing this passage. Another problem I foresee is that if Jesus was forsaken by God, it would seem to remove his own authority over his life and death. If the free will and authority of Jesus are removed at any moment prior to his last breath on the cross, wouldn't this compromise the authority and free will of Jesus? If Jesus was incapable of calling on the Father's help, even in his last breath, 
then he would not have the authority to lay down his life on his own accord since that option would be out of his control if the father abandoned him. Yet he affirmed his father gave him that authority. In John's gospel, we are told a Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees came to arrest Jesus with torches and weapons. A Roman cohort was a band of soldiers ranging from 500 to 1,000 men. The writer of John wants to assure us of the authority of Jesus, even in his arrest by Rome. Jesus asked who they were looking for. They responded, Jesus of Nazareth. John writes in John chapter 18, verse 6, When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. This was not a powerless Messiah who was abandoned by God. With three words, 500 to 1,000 Roman soldiers with weapons fell to the ground. When the writer of Matthew describes the arrest, he writes, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Matthew chapter 26, verse 53. And again, there is no loss of authority over his own life and death. It is for love that a man lays down his life for his friends. For this reason, the Father loves me because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. Did the Father take that authority back in his darkest hour? Would this not turn the murder of Jesus at the hands of wicked men, affirmed by the New Testament, into the murder of Jesus as the result of his father's abandonment. 1 Peter 2, 21-23 says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Would this not suggest that Jesus still had the power and authority to threaten in the midst of his suffering, yet he chose obedience rather than retribution? And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Philippians 2.8 Obedience requires the choice of free will. He was obedient to the point of death, his last breath. If we remove the decision to back out or his authority to retaliate, would this not remove his obedience to the point of death? Next, let's look at the prayer of Jesus to his Father in John's Gospel. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. John chapter 17, 20-23 The prayer here is just days before his death. Jesus is asking his Father to make those who believe in his name one as Jesus and his Father are already one. There is no separation or abandonment. Only perfect union and the union between the Father and the Son is one that is to be the example of the love the Father has not only for the Son but for his people. 
unbroken fellowship and full assurance where there is no hint of forsakenness since this union cannot be severed. John's gospel contains several statements by Jesus just before his passion which shed more light. The ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. John chapter 14, 28-31 The ruler of this world, the devil, is coming. Jesus points to his death that was to come in a matter of days, and where that attack would come from. The ruler of this world, not his Father. Jesus tells us that darkness is coming. But it has no claim on him. The light shines in the darkness, yet the darkness did not overcome it. John 1.5 I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me... You may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. John chapter 16, verse 28 and 32 and 33. Jesus came from the love of his Father, and the time has come to return. Jesus here is telling his disciples, Listen, the time has come for his death. You will all scatter, and I will be left alone on a cross. But I am not alone. Why? The Father is with me. I'm telling you this ahead of time so you will have peace that I have already overcome the world. So the question is, where was God at on Good Friday? Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look upon me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves a firstborn. Zechariah 12, 10. God was not absent in his time of need. The Father was displaying co-suffering love. If Jesus is the fullest revelation of who God is in character and nature, then how does God deal with the problem of sin? God shows his love for us that in while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God does not withdraw from sin. He plunges into it. God enters into our darkness so that he can lead us out. So where was God in this cry of desperation? According to the Apostle Paul, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself by not counting our sins against us. We have the confidence to approach God in a new and living way that was opened for us through the veil of his flesh. We come near with a heart full of assurance. Fear is no longer a factor. What about the cup of God's wrath? The mother of the sons of Zebedee came to ask Jesus if her sons could sit at his right hand and his left hand in his kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, 
but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Matthew chapter 20, verses 22 through 23. If we are to believe the cup in which Jesus was to drink is the cup of God's wrath, then I would suggest we would also have to confess that the sons of Zebedee fulfilled the same work of redemption that Jesus did, taking the wrath of God upon themselves for all mankind. I believe the better answer is that this cup was undoubtedly a cup of suffering, not from God, but from wicked men, a cup that the majority of the apostles would later drink from. The promise that God will never leave us or forsake us was a promise provided even under the Old Covenant, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, not God's wrath, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners, not from the Father, such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Hebrews 12, 2 and 3. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Hebrews 2, 9. God's grace was present, not absent, when Jesus tasted death. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Hebrews 5.7 For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Acts 2.27-28 the cries of Jesus were heard, not abandoned. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name, then a voice from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. John chapter 12, verse 27 and 28. Jesus asked, Should I be troubled and ask the Father to save me from this death? He answers emphatically, Of course not. This is why I came. Luke records the last words of Jesus. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Luke 23, verse 46. We find this phrase in Psalm 31, and it reads, Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, God of truth. For I hear the slander of many. Fear is on every side, while they take counsel against me. They scheme to take away my life. But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. For I said in my haste, I am cut off from before your eyes. Nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplications when I cried out to you. The New Living Translation translates verse 22 as, In panic I cried out, I am cut off from the Lord. In truth, God heard his cries. Let's keep singing to uncover God's involvement. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Psalm 37, 32, and 33. Psalm 41 is a psalm by David. 
In the day of trouble the Lord delivers him. My enemies say of me in malice, When will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words, while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is being poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up, that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Psalm 41, verses 5-12. through 12. Notice what David says here. It's they that say a deadly thing is poured out on him. But the truth is, you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. There's a similar statement found in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 3 and 4. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Again, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and grief, and yet we are the ones who esteemed him or considered him to be afflicted and smitten by God. We thought God was the one afflicting the servant. For more on this idea, you can see my blog, Cursed by God. What was God's involvement then? According to Scripture, for God so loved the world, he delivered him over to save us. John 3.16 Five times in the book of Acts alone, the apostles proclaimed to the people, You crucified Jesus. God raised him from the dead. What are we to make of Jesus becoming sin? The writer of Hebrews affirms Jesus offered himself up without blemish to God. If he became sin or our sin was put upon him, wouldn't that disqualify him as an offering without blemish? The Apostle Paul says this, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Perhaps here we can find a clue. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh. Romans 8, verse 3. Jesus came to us, being born in the likeness of men, in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin. He who knew no sin from all eternity emptied himself out into the form of a servant, into the likeness of sinful flesh. The key here is where God condemns sin. Paul does not say God condemns sin in the body of Jesus. Rather, Paul says sin was condemned in the flesh. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Romans 6.6 6. Jesus submitted himself to a body in the likeness of sinful flesh as a representative of all mankind. 
Paul concluded that if the one who alone in himself holds all things together died, then all have died. If God will turn his back on his only son when he became sin, what will he do when we sin? Did God turn from Adam in the garden, or did Adam turn from God? Cain would become the first murderer, and even then God did not leave him unprotected in his punishment. The entire history of Israel is about a people who continually found themselves in a cycle of idolatry and sin, yet God did not forsake them. So why would we believe God would forsake his only son? Some final thoughts. On the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The only time the Son doesn't refer to God as Father, He identifies with the fallen race, subjectively entering in to the depths of our brokenness, the place where Adam found himself after his disobedience, a place where he was overwhelmed with anxiety, guilt, fear, and shame, but not without returning with one last breath, unraveling the lie that we believed about the Father since the very beginning. The last words on the cross were not, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The last words on the cross were, Father, into your hands I set before you my spirit, a place of full assurance of his love and acceptance. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look upon me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Zechariah 12.10 It was not God's wrath being poured out on Jesus on the cross. It was God's spirit of grace and supplication. And God was not absent with his back turned to his son. Through the prophet Zechariah, Yahweh proclaimed, They will look upon me whom they have pierced.